This is The New Digital Customer, a podcast that brings you insightful and inspiring conversations with customer-focused leaders who are transforming and innovating customer experience. And now your hosts, the CEO of Brightloom, Adam Brotman, and Chief Product Officer, Ben Straley. Hey, everybody. This is Ben. And this is Adam. Hey, uh, we are so excited to uh, have Michael Ramlett joining us here today. Michael is the co-founder and CEO of Morning Consult, a global data intelligence company. Um, Hey there, Michael. Hi, Ben. Hi, Adam. Hey, hey. Hey, uh, thanks so much for for joining us and being on the pod today. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and uh, what Morning Consult does? Absolutely. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Morning Consult. And Morning Consult is the largest survey research company on a daily basis globally. We do over 20,000 interviews across 15 of the largest economies. We track 4,000 brands. So that's 75,000 interviews for each brand. And it explains what's going on with the brand, what's going on with the economy, each of those markets, and what's going on with the overall political environment. Wow. You know, you have, you, you have access to insights from so many consumers, Michael. Um, you know, we call this podcast the new digital customer, uh, you know, because of all the things that are how, how digital everybody's becoming and then how accelerated that became during COVID or has become, you know, you, you know, can you give us a sense of some of the, you know, top of mind, some of the interesting trends you're seeing, particularly as it relates to, uh, consumers and digital and brands? I think you've seen this common media narrative that all of a sudden trends that were supposed to take 10, 15 years to take place happened over three, six months. And I think from our standpoint, what was really challenging for chief marketing officers, for heads of insights, was that you just didn't have a line of sight into how fast that change was happening and how material those changes would remain in a post-COVID world. And so I think from our standpoint, we were really surprised. We launched the company six years ago. Uh, and we just couldn't believe that more brands didn't have more information about sub-segments of their population and what those sub-segments were doing online. And so for us, like if you didn't have the ability to look at you know, a subpopulation, for instance, like Gen Z, and among Gen Z millennial women by income, you just wouldn't have the ability to really understand on a more granular level how those changes were taking place. And so I think we've always found that the depth of data uh, was sometimes lacking in historical legacy vendors. And What's nice about COVID is it gives this really great reset moment for brands to either leverage their internal first-party data or large first-party data sets with companies like Morning Consult. Wow. And, uh, and, and Morning Consult just uh, published a, a report on Gen Z and, and brand affinities, didn't they? Yeah. So, you know, great lead into this is essentially that yesterday we, we announced this major uh, study looking at Gen Z and pre and post COVID. And so you see a lot of these kind of um, overall trends among a population that is going to be particularly fickle for marketers, um, namely the fact that they just aren't even aware of certain brands. Uh, we looked at comparing Gen Z brand ID versus um, older generations, whether Gen X, whether Boomers. And if you think about it, three quarters of the brands that Gen Z, or excuse me, that, that Boomers or Gen X would identify, not even half of Gen Zers could identify those brands. And so there's this total gap between even knowing about the brands. The one that always jumps out to me is, is Harley Davidson. I grew up in Wisconsin. Um, 30% of today's 18-year-olds have never, ever heard of Harley Davidson. Uh, <laughs> another 22%, so writ large, if you combine the 30% that have never heard of it or the 22% of it that heard of it but have no opinion, that means more than half of 18-year-olds today either have never heard of Harley Davidson 
or they've heard of it and don't have an opinion. And that's a staggering stat that's not you know unique to Harley Davidson. This is true about major brands that you know older generations just think everyone knows that they just didn't grow up with or in a highly fragmented media market. They just weren't as you know aware of the actual brand itself. What do you think is going on there? Um, why do you think there is such a, a clear disparity between uh, Gen Z and awareness of a brand like Harley Davidson and, and other generations? I think there's two things going on. One is you have to think about today's 18-year-old came of age, not in a fragmented media market by cable channel, but by platforms like YouTube and other internet uh-huh. platforms. And so there's just not one mass medium in a way that, you know, even back to broadcast television. So one is there's no one place where you would have seen uh, you know, a Harley Davidson motorcycle and one sort of definitive movie that every single Gen Z uh, individual might have watched. So I think one is just how you grow up in a highly fragmented media market. The second, and I think this is the equally important part, is that you know they're not interested in legacy brands in the way that um, a lot of other individuals have been in each generation before. You, know, you look at among their overall brands that they like, even among the top 50 brands among Gen Z, um, they have less affinity for those brands. So even of the brands they say they really like, they don't like them as much as what Gen X or baby boomers think of the brands that they love. And it, it obviously has more of a skew for younger respondents in Gen Z. So 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, they're going to skew towards more kind of cultural technology type applications like TikTok. Um, but there isn't the same level of intensity for those brands. And so it sort of calls into question the traditional brand building basics. And I think, you know, for a lot of marketers, that's sort of going back to square one. And, and it should be exciting. This shouldn't be a threat. This should be something that um, creates a tremendous opportunity to rethink what the next 10 years of your marketing strategy looks like. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I mean, I, I'm I'm wondering, I don't know if you've had a chance to share uh, these insights directly with brands or, or to get their reaction um, to to some of these insights. But uh, it, I guess the question for you is, have you, and if you have, what has been the response? And and if you haven't, um, is that part of what Morning Consult does is to sort of work with brands to to sort of map these insights to, to strategy? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, you know, there's a generalization and then there's the unique cases. I think at a generalization level, um, we work with about 267, I think, of the Fortune 500 brands today. So we're able to get a good look across different industries, whether it's CPG, mobility, um, retail. Um, from our standpoint, I think the overall reaction is that where most marketers sit today is at some level of frustration about the speed to insight. That traditionally in our industry, for market research, for instance, like the Cantars, the Nielsen's, the Ipsos of the world, it just takes too long to get the data back to a decision maker. And at the same time, it's really difficult to look at subpopulations. So like we're talking about right. Gen Z women who make 50 to 100K, you just wouldn't have a large enough sample size. And so I think what we have found, and you know, I'm curious from your guys' perspective, but you know, what we found is that it becomes empowering for the right individuals and organization who aren't wedded to how they always do, do things. And I think where COVID impacts our business or create a lot of opportunities was historically organizations might have a trend or a particular data set they used with kind of a look towards, you know, the 1990s or the 2000s. And in the COVID-based environment, so many things changed so dramatically that I think for a lot of marketers or heads of insights, it's actually pretty liberating because now they're not wedded to how they always did things in the past. It's sort of that inflection moment where they can start to think 
maybe more expansively or more creativity or with greater creativity towards what do I want to be doing for the future? And I think speed to insights and then frankly, the ability to connect data sets. So, you know, being able to look at not only what do the insights mean in isolation, but what do they mean in relation to things like transaction data um, or other first party data sets a lot of companies have, but don't necessarily leverage. Yeah, that I mean this 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 notion of speed and the role that it's playing in in consumer experience, brand awareness, certainly uh, in terms of how marketing um, is planned and executed these days is is really central. And then COVID has only you know further accelerated that. And I, I just wonder, kind of going back to the insight that you were talking about in terms of the intensity of the affinity that uh, Gen Zers have toward brands. I would imagine that that also shows up in in terms of how quickly uh, brand trust or awareness can be won or lost among Gen Zers, and and consequently for marketers to have the data and the the platforms that enable them to detect those changes much faster than you know w- what was necessary maybe ten years ago when when brand brand programs, brand campaigns really measured impact uh, by quarter or by year. Uh, now it's almost sort of day by day or week by week, uh, isn't it? Yeah, I think what the data stands out with Gen Z in terms of their brand affinities, it's what have you done for me lately? And it's right. all about the new. You know, the lack of kind of depth and strength and kind of existing ties to even their currently favorite, favorite brands creates this opportunity for either new incumbents, like take for instance, say like, TikTok and the Instagram type dynamic, the ability for new incumbents to very quickly change Gen Z habits. And in the same time too, you look at their outlook on life, the two biggest events that are now shaping sort of what they believe to be their generational struggles were you know, Black Lives Matter and COVID. And right before that then would have been kind of the overall Parkland uh, shootings, a number of kind of right. shooting pieces. And so you just see this generation that obviously has a different set of experiences than you know, millennials who aren't, you know, in some cases, not dramatically older, kind of younger millennials would be in their, their mid to late 20s. But in that Harley Davidson comparison, think about it this way, the 18 year old 30%, so today's 18 year old 30% of them don't know what Harley Davidson is. Whereas for the 30 year old who's in kind of the middle demographic for millennials, it's only 7% don't know. And so in a lot of these cases, the question becomes, is this now like this moment in time for so many of their established brands or new brands to all of a sudden penetrate with Gen Z for the first time? So kind of the, it's new, here's what's exciting, they're not as wedded to the same experiences. Or is this sort of just the recognition that you know the same methods of indoctrinating kind of an adult over the course of their lifetime going through youth uh, cycles from primary to secondary to post-secondary education, like it just didn't have the same effect because there's so much fragmentation. Hey, can I, uh, one, one quick follow-up to that. What have you seen either specific examples or generally of brands that have done a nice job of actually taking advantage of this moment um, and, and either to reach a younger generation or, or maybe even more importantly to reach multiple generations? You know, I think the CPG category is one that's going to be really important to watch. I, I look at it from two different standpoints. One is you look at a brand, for instance, like Oreos that has made that, maintained that cultural relevance. Um, it's a top 50 brand among Gen Z today. And I think if we looked at it over time, it would be you know, strong resonance across multiple generations. And so it's a brand that stands out in terms of being able to maintain. But at the same time, like I almost look at it as like, what's the second opportunity? So think of like brands in like the Kraft Heinz portfolio, where like, you know, maybe younger millennial parents were less willing to buy Kraft macaroni and cheese 
um, or kind of the traditional like big box brands um, coming out or prior to COVID, but coming out of COVID is sort of what's the ease of accessing those types of products through Instacart or other kind of online grocery. And so it's probably a, either a second opportunity or in some cases, a first opportunity for um, some of those younger millennial audiences in the case of kind of millennial parents or in the case of Gen Z to start to encounter some of these brands that just seem like such a standard staple if you're a Gen X, a boomer consumer. I wonder, what what do you think Oreo, it's interesting you say about Oreo, like they they were sort of notorious five, six, seven years ago for being really savvy with social media um, you think that's what did it for them or like, wh- why is Oreo relevant to a younger generation? I mean, I get why they're relevant to my generation or older generations because, you know, we're older and we remember them and whatever, but like, wh- wh- how do you think Oreo did it in your opinion? I think it's a great question in terms of where product innovation meets marketing innovation. You know, I think if you look at Oreo in the last 10 years, like, you know, the, the older generations that would go into a grocery store and would look at all of the different SKUs for Oreo would probably be uh, either mesmerized or concerned at just how many <laughs> different colors, how like how many different flavors. The the I, you know how, I don't even know what the levels of stuff are at this point within Oreos, um, but just you know that it seems like in that particular one, what jumps out to me is just there's been substantial product innovation. Um, but at the same time, too, like you know, it would obviously be a, a worthwhile deep dive on kind of. What was it from a marketing standpoint? I think what we're always surprised by is the degree to which um, marketers have very little information in terms of uh, anything other than what they get from the platform from where they're advertising. And so in that case, like if we're now looking at multi-platform advertising uh, or today, like thinking more broadly about sort of uh, streaming and OTT, just the degree to which it's really hard to understand what is the resonance of like, what if an Oreo played a key plot role on a uh, Netflix show? Like I tell you, you know, for morning console, one of the things that I, that, you know, I'm always impressed by is like, we get reference on this Netflix show um, where it's a, it's a campaign or the, the candidate. And it's like, what does morning console say? I can't tell you how many more CMOs come to us about like, Oh, I saw the, the name drop on Netflix. It's like, yeah, but like, what about that incredible Wall Street Journal partnership we did? Or what about that incredible like New York Times piece we did as part of the Pulitzer Prize main package? And so, you know, to some of these brands too, it might not actually be, you know, just in their own control. Like maybe it is actually sort of these moments. The problem is they don't have the ability to measure those multi-platform uh, appearances or the advertising campaigns in the way that they probably did in a more static world with just radio and television. Yeah, it, that's interesting. I mean, in switching gears slightly, you know, what do you think in your position, you probably, this is part, part of the research I'm guessing you do, what, what digital channels and I don't, our platforms, I don't mean specific, although you could be specific. I mean, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, email, text, push notification. I'm, I'm crossing brands with channels. But like, what are you seeing today, uh, lately, last, you know, three, four, five months during COVID? Is anything sticking out to you that certain channels uh, to get consumers' attention are like popping or changing that people should be aware of? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, to provide the full context here. So every day we're going to do 200 interviews per day for these 4,000 plus brands across 15 countries. And we're going to ask you about brand ID, like are you aware of the brand, favorability, purchasing inspiration. And then in addition to that, we're going to ask you an expansive set of demographic questions. So like your behavior, if you, 
uh, have certain demographics, geographic characteristics, the industries you work in. And I give that as the context because I think what we're particularly interested in is not just obviously what happens in the US, but on a global basis. And the brand that stands out to me the most is TikTok. I mean, I swear in terms of the tracking in the last three years, TikTok has experienced the entire life cycle of a brand that in the past would have taken 50 plus years. And then it's just, you know, it's incredible to see both like in a COVID-based environment, how much, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising can drive overall downloads. And they were downloading, you know, or running that advertising on existing platforms like Facebook. Um, and so you get this really interesting dichotomy of the the merging brand stories. So how do you go from nothing to something? And right. how does it go from Gen Z to boomers in terms of use? And then right. all of a sudden, sort of the uh, you know the life cycle that you know historical industries like I always feel like the uh, the graduate like you know plastics is the future. And like and eventually, then like the plastics industry goes through like government regulation and right. uh, you get an entire like kind of sustainability like debate. Well, in the case of like TikTok, it's like year two or three, and it's like what are the geopolitical elements and dynamics around privacy and U.S. You know, relations and the role of Scipius and other kind of dynamics. And so you can see like in the last six weeks, since this really became a hot button political issue, you can see the overall partisan gaps between where Republicans are and Democrats are on TikTok. You can see the difference between if they believe uh, it should be acquired by an American company, if the ban is appropriate, sort of all these like underlying existential questions. And so to me, the most interesting brand bar none of the last three years, but certainly the last three months is TikTok. And it's, and it's not unique to the US either. That's a, you know, right. examples like in India, you've got, you had a military uh, incursion between uh, the Indian and Chinese military. And actually the very first ban of Chinese apps took place in India. And you can see in the real-time data, you know, of what the Indian population thinks about TikTok, you can see that movement overnight. And so this sort of overall like geopolitical warfare with brands is increasingly an interesting topic as well. That is uh, that is really interesting, and I think it it sort of um, building on on that. Um, you mentioned uh, we talked about Harley Davidson a few minutes ago, and and you made the comment that you know we're at this sort of moment where brands have this uh, great opportunity to uh, step back and start over. Uh, and so I'm curious, you know, as, given your your unique and very broad. Um, vantage point, um, what are some of the sort of high level um, uh, recommendations that you would have for, let's say, a, a, a team at a brand that's maybe outside of that top 50, um, but of an existing brand, like when you say start over, where would you start? What would you, what are the first few steps that you'd take? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would include the top 50 because I think if you're not okay. going to burn it down right now and yeah. think about the next 10 years, like you won't be in the top 50. And I, I just think that that's sort of like, this is a moment of rebirth for what marketing and growth looks like. And I think the the alignment with product level leaders goes hand in hand with it. But to your specific question, the number yeah. one thing I care about is just starting to be able to do iterative segmentation. You know, from our standpoint, the reason why we're so focused on being able to collect 10 million plus interviews a year was that if you have that amount of scale, you can do something more than like, the old school Simmons study where it's like, well, we talked to like 40 people who are women between 18 and 29, making between 1500K. And it's like, there's a lot of variance between those, you know, results. And I think from our standpoint, with most marketing or growth teams, the very first thing is to say, 
let's throw out what your segmentation tool was from 10 years ago. Because TikTok didn't exist as a massive advertising platform, distribution channel, even like three years ago. And so I think we look at it as kind of two different pieces. The first is, can you really leverage the scale of data either that we have or that hopefully that business has on its own underlying transaction or SKU level data sets? So be able to take the first party data that a client has, as well as married with us, all the brand middle of the funnel metric data we have around ID and favorability and purchasing consideration. And we're trying to continue to enhance the data. So like, for instance, today for those 4,000 brands, we don't just ask you, like, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of a brand? We then ask you an open-ended question about why. So we can do the topical analysis uh, that that response. But I think from our standpoint, you just have to start with the assumption that if you have a greater data set to work with, you can do much more granular and I think more effective segmentation. And then recognizing that it's not like, okay, we set our segmentation tool and this is going to last us the next five or 10 years. It's recognizing that's got to be iterative. And so I think from our standpoint, once you identify those segments, it's the ability to continuously update that with real-time data as events emerge or as new categories emerge, but then subsequently the ability to marry that with channel analysis. So the two things I think we spend a lot of time talking about is, all right, let's make sure we know that this is who you want to talk to, either your core customer, the most uh, addressable adjacencies, but then also specifically based on the segments you created, where are those people? Are they on TikTok? Are they on Instagram? Are they on HGTV? Like across, we track the, the media consumption behavior of the top 25 websites, the top 25 television channels, all the major social platforms, all of the major um, streaming platforms. And I think from our standpoint, you just you get to get to this place where you never got to before, where you had real-time iterative segmentation and then the ability in time to essentially direct campaigns with more responsiveness than you could before. And I think obviously, you know, things like Brightloom allow you to do, you know, even more segmentation of, of what you're doing in terms of the customer experience. Yeah, I mean, at Brightloom, we're we're pretty focused on how do you talk to your own current digitized customers in the most relevant and emotionally connected way. So it doesn't mean it's not an or, it's an and. I mean, all the things you're talking about are just as important, but we're we're pretty focused on all right, you've got 100,000 customers, you got a million customers, you got 20,000 customers. They've, they, they're your current customers. They have a digital relationship with you. How can you make sure that you're reaching them in, the, in, in a way that's very personalized, relevant, and effective? And so one of the questions I'd have for you, this is a completely selfish question, um, but I can't help but ask it because we have you on the podcast and, and I want to take advantage of it, which is how... How, what, besides platforms like TikTok or Instagram or, you know, television, you know, shows and brands, what actual like methods of reaching customers? I don't know if you do any research in this area. Have you found to be currently very effective? So for example, is email still super effective? Is, you know, what about push or text messaging? People are people annoyed by that. I mean, do you, do you ever do research into that area? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where we just take a really broad view to distribution. And I think from our standpoint, what amazes us is the degree to which email or text, for instance, like very SMS is not a new technology and they remain incredibly powerful in terms of the overall reach. I think where we tend to look at it is beyond segment, segment out consumer versus, for instance, like enterprise consumers. Um, so I think from our standpoint, a lot of the areas where we end up doing deep dives are for B2B brands looking at how do you create the right optimized content, whether it's for email, whether it's for LinkedIn, 
um, that really leverage it. And I think what we're surprised by is the degree to which it all comes back to a level of authenticity. And if the data adds value um, for us, you know, that ends up being a really clear case of where, you know, for most organizations, it's so formulaic and it's just the same thing over and over again and without actually understanding which, you know, end consumer or end persona you're actually reaching with that information. And so I think when we see it from a lot of clients, it's trying to get them to think differently about the content they create. So for instance, like Prudential and FedEx released these trackers with us publicly. So it's, I think, good examples of point twos. Prudential has an index about wealth and how people are thinking about the future of their retirement security. And obviously, like the advent of kind of the, the bar stool day trader is a totally different dynamic for uh, wealth management in the future of the wealth management industry. And so the ability to track those types of trends, well, now all of a sudden that's creating interesting content, not just for like who maybe was a traditional like credential customer, but it's also interesting content for parents who have, you know, you know Gen Z uh, children that are all of a sudden now getting engaged in retail investing, for instance, um, or like FedEx, for instance, like that we track the small business trade index for the last three years, every quarter looking at for, for FedEx, how do you look at different segments of the economy? So different NAICS codes or different sizes of small businesses and how does their outlook on the economy uh, trend? And, you know, for them, it's, it's directionally valuable in terms of where they're investing, but it's also really valuable to share back to broader audiences. Uh, and so I think our view on content creation has always been, how do you really inform the end, end buyer and in that enterprise market, there's nothing that replaces good data delivered either through email or text or um, other kind of more mass media consumption platforms. You know, uh, speaking of data, um, one of the things that uh, we're also hearing a lot about is is privacy, uh, both here in the U.S., but also globally. And I'm sure that that is a, an issue that is top of mind um, for you. But how do you see these uh, issues of privacy and, and um, uh, data and data usage playing out um, around the around the globe and here in the U.S. You know, I think the the GDPR movement in Europe, a lot of the California privacy initiatives, you know, just seem like the beginning of a larger policy debate, and it's going to play out in terms of how to consumers think about the value of their own data, but it's also going to play out in terms of what are larger trends in terms of you know, the overall internet and Chinese applications versus your EU applications with US applications. And so I think from our standpoint, we've always looked at it first and foremost as privacy is critical to get right. And obviously because we're a company that's focused on consumer insights, it was core to our business. But I think what we looked at long-term business value was that if we could build a first party asset, it was gonna allow us to do things uh, over a period of time that make the overall enterprise value uh, stronger. And I think that's gonna be true too for businesses themselves is, you know, the the Salesforce CRM is an incredibly powerful tool, but it's just one of so many tools that yep. companies will be doing to leverage their own first party data. And, and so, and, uh, sorry, sorry, Michael, just to to jump in for a moment, when you talk about first party versus third party data, just for our listeners, can you make the distinction between those two different types of data? Yeah. So when I think of first party versus third party data, I think of it as data that we collect and that we own um, and that we have permission to collect, I should say. Um, whereas, you know, I think, Obviously, you're seeing this play out with the App Store and Facebook right now in terms of what are going to be the permissions on the next operating system. And third-party data is a great example of this is, you know, what's the data that marketing clouds like an Oracle or Adobe are collecting? And a lot of that's kind of that third-party um, targeting data from cookies. 
And it just seems like both the regulatory environment and the general business environment is moving away from a situation which you're going to be able to use third-party data in a way in which you could historically for the last 20 years. And so if that's the case, it kind of falls into this larger trend of this is a unique moment in time where you can invest in sort of the future and kind of burn it all down and build what the right platform is for the next 10 years. And I think in a lot of ways, folks that are so reliant on third-party data are really going to find themselves at the mercy of regulators, whether they're in the European Union, whether they're in the United States, uh, whether they're not at the federal or the state level. And I think they're going to create a lot of lit litigative risk. And I think where we see for a lot of organizations is this opportunity, in our case, to leverage data that we have that's first party um, or the ability for them uh, to really leverage their own underlying operating data to really enhance, you know, I think, a lot of things that you guys are doing um, already in terms of the customization pieces. And how, what, what is your assessment of sort of the maturity of the, of the market for these first party data uh, solutions? I mean, um, I think what, uh, you know, uh, many companies and brands have today are sort of the basics where they're collecting uh, some form of first party data from, from customers, either through um, uh, digital ordering, uh, order ahead, that sort of thing. Also, some of the work that, that you're doing for brands. But how much of a, a gap is there between kind of state of the art and state of the industry? I think there's a significant gap, and it's probably widening, not narrowing. I think when we look at you know, I think it obviously kind of two different ends of the spectrum within the market research industry. You know, a lot of the industries that were supposed to be quote unquote market leaders, um, they would do maybe weekly trackers, maybe they do monthly trackers, and they might collect maybe a thousand interviews in a survey. And I think for us, when we see that, you know, it's it's really shocking because it's incredibly expensive to do that. You know, we'll see situations where there's 14, Fortune 500 companies. You know, one comes to mind in the CPG space where they're spending thirteen and a half million dollars for a project that was delivering 36,000 interviews. And we're doing 75,000 interviews uh, and it costs uh, $120,000 a year. So if you just, you look at the kind of scale, uh, it just doesn't make any sense in terms of what dollars are being spent and what instance, insights are being derived. And so I think fortunately for us, obviously, you know, we went from 30K angel capital to a $300 million business in six years. So um, we were really lucky to be, I think at the right time in the right place, but I think, we had the right view of how do you create the technology to support data collection, data processing, the visualization, and then the connection to uh, business decisions. And I think that's not going to be unique to the market research industry. I think that's actually going to take place across the entire MarTech stack is that it, it should be better, it should be faster, and it should be cheaper. And I think you know that just requires more than anything at the end of the day, I think marketing leadership that recognizes that what got them to the top 50 brands in the last five or 10 years is not going to keep them in the top 50 brands. And the fact that Gen Z is so uh, disloyal in some ways or so uninterested in uh, historical brands is going to make this doubly difficult as that generation comes of age with far greater purchasing control than maybe some of the aging demographics a lot of these brands have relied on. Does Gen Z, on that point, does Gen Z, do millennials, I'm, I'm going to act like I know what I'm talking about in this generation things. I don't. First of all, Gen Z and millennials are right up next to one another. Is that right? Yeah. So, so think of like 25, 26 is the split line. So, so you have younger millennials that are, that are in the workforce uh, in that kind of late 20s. And you're just starting to see um, older Gen Zers from 18 to, to 25 entering the workforce as well. Got it. And are, do, do Gen Zs and millennials 
act a lot alike or are they different? Are you finding like, no, in this report? And, and frankly, we've seen this across the board is, um, I think where you see issues where they operate more alike is obviously like a younger millennial at 26 is going to operate similar to kind of, there's a couple of different definitions on the exact age lines, but somebody at 26 is going to be more similar to somebody at 24 than say like an 18 year old and a 30 year old. So uh, that's where I was giving the example with Harley Davidson. But um, I think that there's really the way to think about it is twofold as we kind of kicked off the show with was one is what was the ways in which you consume information as you were growing up? You think about millennials, like fragmentation, in the media market was like 24 seven news cycles on cable television and like multiple cable channels. Whereas and websites. And yeah, Gen Z. It was like, you know, they, they would have been, you know, they would have been seven or eight when like drudge became like a huge platform. Um, whereas if you looked at today, like the Gen Zers that are coming of age, like they would have grown up with you as YouTube natives. Um, and so I think, you know, from the standpoint of just growing up with that level of fragmentation, it's hard to have a mass media piece. We did a really cool project looking at um, SNL hosts, like how hard it is to actually find an SNL host who is like, everyone agrees is a celebrity is actually like really, really challenging now. Um, and so subsequently, like it creates this problem of like, there's no mass media stars. And in some ways that empowers more sophisticated marketing tactics, because you can actually pull in uh, the individuals that would allow you to have more kind of customized products to more customized personalities. And that's exciting. But at the same time too, like the death of kind of mass media platforms makes it really hard to all of a sudden get that level of awareness really fast. Um, the second is then, you know, how they purchase things. So just the, the sheer like fragmentation, not just of how you consume information, but now how do you buy things or how do you engage with things? And I think the thing that isn't talked enough about probably in the marketing world, but is talked about exclusively today in the political world is what's the difference between population density in urban centers versus suburban centers versus rural uh, centers. So that's, that's fascinating. So if you're a marketer today, taking this in, you're thinking you're, if I was a marketer listening to this, this conversation, I'd be thinking, that's what you said earlier about, you said, you said authenticity or personalization has to sort of resonate at every demographic at every level. It's not. And so that, and that, and you're saying it's, you almost have to do that for Gen Zers maybe even millennials. But if you're doing that well, you're going to reach everybody because if you're, if you're doing something that's relevant and personalized, it's relevant and personalized to everybody you're reaching it to. But if you try to do something that's going to be more mass, uh, you might find yourself up against something with the younger generations. That's interesting. Yeah. There's a, basically, there's Super Bowl ads and that's it in terms of like mass media. Plays. And I think from <laughs> our standpoint, like that requires then a level of depth of data to be able to do that level of segmentation really, really well. Yeah, yeah I, the, this is a, such an interesting point, Michael, because I, I think uh, you and I were talking uh, recently about this and, and there was something you mentioned that I meant to follow up with you on and I'm doing it now. And that is, you know, um, social media monitoring and keeping tra these tools that existed to kind of, they still do, but to that existed to sort of monitor mentions and conversations uh, that were happening online between, you know, two people or a threaded conversation on a forum or Facebook or whatnot sort of stood for um, uh, awareness and insights into the zeitgeist. And 
what you do and what Morning Consult does is something quite different. And I'm just curious, like, what is your perspective on the the sort of monitoring, the passive monitoring of conversations that are happening all over the place through these social channels versus the kind of very, very surgical and focused approach that that uh, Morning Consult takes? It's a great question. From our standpoint, you look at news media monitoring or social listening, and we have the full API for LexisNexis in the platform and the full API for Twitter. So you get that data flow. The problem is that it was trying to solve for the larger issue, which is that historically market research wasn't able to move fast enough. The only way you're going to know what people think is you actually have to ask them. And if you're going to ask them, you're going to need to also find a representative sample of whatever population or country or segment you're looking for. And that takes time. And that was really a problem for the Nielsen's, the Cantars, the Ipsos. At the same time, the marketers or heads of communications all of a sudden need to be reacting hypothetically to things on Twitter or on Facebook. And so it really was emblematic of the underlying problem, which is that you couldn't find out what people think in real time and really be able to act on it. And that was what we're solving for. I think when we look at social listening and news media monitoring, I think it made marketers and communicators' lives so much more difficult because it produces a tremendous amount of false signal. You know, and you think about it, Twitter is not a representative sample of the population. The people who tweet are even less representative. Um, and it's not, you know, to say that you know, that's unique just to Twitter. It's, you know, I, a lot of these platforms just it struggles with both who's active on the platform and then, you know, what is it about what they're saying that could possibly be derived is what they think. And you know, from our standpoint, this is where, um, you know, hopefully it's, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to put an explicit label on uh, this podcast, but it's the, um, we'll call it the poop emoji problem, uh, which is that uh, you don't know if it, you know, if, if somebody says that product is, you know, the poop emoji, uh, you don't know if it is poop or you don't know if it is the poop, uh, if you think about it in the SHIT uh, category. And so it could be the sh or shit. And that is like underlying, like, data science problem with natural language processing on those platforms is yep. you don't have the sort of full context of what they actually think. The other thing that's really problematic with it is you don't get all the depth of demographic or behavioral data. And so consequently, like you're getting some derived insights, again, oftentimes off of like third party cookies, and you just don't have the ability, like if I know that you have 50 to 100K invest in the market, or that I know that you are like actively drinking uh, seltzer, uh, or hard seltzer on a, on a regular basis. So you don't get the ability to actually get this like expansive demographic profile. And then I think you just have limited sort of context for what people are trying to say. And then subsequently also like, you just don't have a representative sample. If Twitter was a representative sample in 2016, Bernie Sanders would have been president. And obviously, right. you know, it's, that's the challenge in the political world is a lot of journalists or others, like, you know, you only get so much out of Twitter in terms of what every average American is thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. There's that, you can't, you can only see so much from how many followers they have or, you know, what their bio says to understand how much you should be pay, placing stock. It kind of goes against too what we talked about before, which is like in that much more segmented world, you need that depth of data to be able to do the optimization necessary to make it new and exciting for each subpopulation. Yeah. Well, hey, Michael, one last question for you. I know we're, we're kind of running up against time, but I, I, it's a question we ask all of our guests. What are some brands that have impressed you, and you know, personally, not not just as you know, in your in your job, but just as a as a as a customer yourself, as a digital customer, who who impresses you now, uh, particularly most recently? So I'm going with two, and they are totally 
unexpected, I feel like, for your audience. Um, one is PBS. I don't think you know anyone was going to come on here and be like, PBS has really impressed me. Um, but they really have. They've got an incredible OTT app on tele- on smart televisions that I just, you know, I bring it up because it, I guess, points to very old legacy organization, um, kind of the idea that you can reinvent yourself. And I think what impressed me about the PBS app, I'm a, I'm a big documentary nerd. So, uh, you know, good season of American experience this year. Um, but it, I also have an 18 month old and, you know, having <laughs> spent a lot of time at home and COVID yeah. and the ability to pull up on any yeah. you, you can get Daniel app. Tiger on the app. Like, no, right. Exactly. <laughs> Daniel Tiger. It's American yeah. experience. Like that's a breath of kind of like nobody's giving enough uh, Netflix multiples to PBS. Uh, the, the other one that is like similar, but different. And I think this is just, to me, these are the inspiring like cases is um, Portillo's, which is, um, you know, a very um, uh, traditional, like Chicago chain, um, yeah, love Portillo's. I'm with my wife, so I'm, I'm more of a transplant on the Portillo's love, but, um, you know, th- there is incredible kind of major regional chain. And I swear, like they're probably half the delivery time of anyone else on DoorDash, on Uber Eats, on anything else. And so like, to me, like, you know, we joke, like we're in the middle of like the nap time rituals and we're like trying to figure out like, oh, okay, what time do we order like food when my daughter goes to sleep? And, you know, I think from our standpoint, like it's impressive to me because that's, you know, obviously a a restaurant chain that's not like they're brand new and would have been like just of, of the kind of no infrastructure, let's just invest in the newest like pieces and they're continuously investing in. So I, my gut is that, you know, this is more about leadership and the type of individuals and the projects they want to take on and where they want to be in the industry than it is necessarily about old versus new. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that they both have both your examples. The theme I heard from you just now was as a customer, you appreciated how they you know, you, you have your needs, your needs around convenience, your needs around kind of in both cases, kind of convenience. Like you, you had a con- convenience need one around kind of time shifting uh, to, of content or just getting food, you know, when you, when you needed it. And I think that's an interesting theme from both of those. So thanks for those examples. And um, it's been great having you. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Take care. Thanks very much, uh, Michael. It's great to have you on the podcast. Um, And that is our show for today. Please stay tuned for next week when we'll have another customer-focused leader on. Until then, take care. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on what Adam and Ben are building with their teams, visit brightloom.com and follow them on Twitter at Adam Brotman and at B Straley.